Live for Live Music presents Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And welcome back, folks. This is a special one for me. Wow, is this special, Rob? Is it your birthday? We have... No, we already went through all the oh, birthday yeah. thing. Remember I had to go to Chicago to celebrate my 50th? That's right. How could I, yeah. how could I forget? Nobody cared in Atlanta. I went to Chicago. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, of course they care. Dude, I've been a fan of Los Lobos literally since before I was in college. I remember there was a day I was driving and how how will the wolf survive? There was an album How Will the Wolf Survive and there's a song Will the Wolf Survive? I forget which is which. Sorry, I made the same mistake in the interview. Who cares? The point being, I heard that song on the radio. I lived in Boston, WBCN, a little more enlightened than your average rock station. They played deeper stuff, so they were on to Los Lobos very early. And uh, and then I went. Bamba. Uh, oh yes, several years. And then I well a few years. Um, then I go into a doctor's office for a doctor's appointment and pick up. <laughs> Just coffee. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's more recent doctor. The only thing is, Rob, I'm like, Rob, did you go to the doctor last week? You're like, yeah, I'm going to go every week. It's a nice thing. They jiggle. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like to turn my head, sir. <laughs> Ma'am. <laughs> Either way, whoever's in front of me. But seriously, I, I, Los Lobos. Okay, so I hear the song. I go in the doctor's office. I'm sitting in the waiting room, and there was kind of an old timer newsweek, and I pick it up and start leafing through, and there's a review of that record. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa. And then it, it must have been an old magazine because then just a couple weeks later, By the Light of the Moon came out with the one that starts with One Time, One Night. And a brilliant album. I bought it right away. I've been a fan ever since. I Honestly, as I say in the interview, their album that they put out in the 90s called Kiko, I put up there with the greatest records I've ever heard in my life. That is not that is not clickbait, youth, jerk, jerky, dirk, hyperbole. That is an actual point. And uh, now Seth arranged this and... Um, we got to talk to Steve Berlin, one of them, and I think we're a step away from talking to David Hidalgo. If he had not had an injury, he might have joined us. He had an injury at the beginning of March. He fell. Uh, they're not really talking about it too much, but he is in a little bit of pain. They they played the show with a a, a, a accordionist accompanying. Hmm. So that was very unusual for me as a longtime Los Lobos fan. I'd seen Hidalgo play accordion. I'd never seen him play off of an accordion. Very interesting. The show was very short that night, but was killer. Um, but anyway, Steve Berlin, I got to give you props, Seth, because that is it's. We have tornado watches and warnings at the undisclosed location here in Georgia. If you yes. hear the thunder in the background, are you okay with that, Seth? I'm more. I'm more than okay. I, I, can I know love you hate nice, background noise. Yeah, but the thunderstorm it's so nice. I mean, it's not the nice when it like tree falls on your car or something like that. But it's definitely it's very relaxing. That just love it. I love actually, it. in my new house, there's two pines that look like they're ready to come down. So I actually pull my car to the side of the garage almost in the backyard strategically to keep it away from trees well, my I, dog well, hold on a second yes. i figured you'd be the guy that's like check your insurance policy and then put it right under the tree no. just hoping you can get a new car <laughs> i don't know why you'd figure that i'm quite the opposite yeah, my dog is alone in the house and i'm not very comfortable with that right now if a tree falls in the house i would ha- i would prefer it to happen not when my dog is alone in the house here i thought you were gonna say if a tree falls in the house would someone hear your dog bark no i'm not cheesy like that mm. So anyways, we got, uh, you did a great thing in this interview, much like in the Mo interview. People, people who say Seth is useless, listen closely hey. <laughs> to this interview. Because I, and Los Lobos is great, and they have a rich history, but we had limited time. And left to my own devices, I would have just talked to Los Lobos the whole time, and that would have not done our listeners or Steve Berlin the right thing. Because he is an excellent producer as well. He mm-hmm. referred to himself as a C-list producer, which is like, I don't know. He's not a sealer. Uh That's ridiculous. He inspired me, though. After uh, after the talk there, I immediately looked up uh, some of the artists he talked about, and I also purchased that Deer Tick album, and it's fantastic. He did a fan- really phenomenal job with that. Did you get it on vinyl? Uh, I did get it on vinyl. Hey, have me over sometime when the, ne- when the wife's not around, and we'll listen to it. Someone say they want to order a popcorn? A popcorn! 
very enjoyable interview. I got a chance to meet Steve Berlin. Guess where, Rob? Uh, Jam Cruise. Yes, sir. We did a uh, world music uh, panel with him, uh, Beats Antique, and Dave Watts from the Motet. And I found him to be extremely fascinating. So I was really, really glad he gave us a time. And at the City Winery, we've conducted a couple interviews, and we'll probably be doing more there. But, Rob... How about that team there? They're, they're staff. They really, they really, on the one hand, they really go to bat for us and really try to find us a spot. On the other hand, I'm not sure we'll be doing interviews there because it always seems hard to do so. As much as they're trying, there's never a room. I don't know. It, maybe we should do a better job advancing it. I think what I'm going to do is, yeah, definitely discuss it directly with Jim uh, Etheridge, who's their... Uh, their um, a marketing director and oh, see and the guy who canceled the appointment with me when I was literally on my way there and then didn't return my phone calls when I tried to reschedule. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh I don't god. like him. I don't oh like god. him. I love City oh Winery, but I don't like him. Why don't you? Just, you're gonna make it. So you're, you're turning Might City Winery into City him. Winery. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll wine Ponce City Market and City City Winery should know about this at the end of the show because it's very Atlanta centric. We'll talk about. Uh, Pont City Market ticketing unmarked spaces and then the fallout that came from that. It's pretty funny. But hey, Seth, I saw a bunch of great shows this week, one uh, of which you were at for I two. was at that one. But that first, one. I want to say Ali Loss out of L.A., who harkens back to the zombies and the kinks as well as, they'll remind you of Wilco a little bit, but they definitely have sharp guitar tones and their very own modern sound. They played at Terminal West and it was just it. Freaking incredible show. Outstanding show. Of course, Clancy, who works with you, is uh, knows all about them. Speaking so he of, wasn't surprised. Speaking of Clancy, Clancy, I'm going to have him come over here in a second because he happened to go to Fool's Paradise this week, and I want to go ahead and get a couple seconds from him on that. We'll do that at the end. And nowadays, oh, yeah. Yeah, nowadays yeah. Clancy okay. can't even sing, right? Still. It's an old reference. This goes back to our first shows. Do you remember that? Yeah. No. Do you listen to our own show? So, uh, speaking no, of wait, shows... Before we, no, no, no. Before we move off Ali Loss, the funny thing that you'll like... And, and by the way, excellent show. If they come to your town, check them out. Um, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. But the opening band was the Babe Rainbows. Young band, exuberant, kind of in the Black Angels psychedelic thing. But they, I'm not saying on level. I mean, they got a long way to go to even get in the Black Angels League. But really exuberant, fun band. So then <laughs> Ali Laz is on stage and a couple of them come out. And the singer who, of uh, Babe Rainbows, who's this real flamboyant kid, just all over the place, is jumping all around the stage. And then another song comes and the other guys leave and the singer's still out there. And then another song, the singer's still out there jumping around, and I swear the Ali Loss guys were, it was getting old. They were getting pissed off. And then finally, Loss. finally, They're, literally, I think someone <laughs> had to come from side stage and physically remove the singer. I, he was just exuberant. He seems clearly a fan of Ali Loss. I don't think there was anything sinister about it. It was just a young kid who doesn't really understand decorum on the stage or something. And just wanted to show his joy for the band, but was being a little out of line. It was f- for this, uh, you know, cranky veteran. It was fun to watch. Did he have a shirt on? Yeah, yeah. I think. Don't don't worry. There's thunder and there's chairs squeaking. Seth, it's okay. It's okay. We're in an office, an undisclosed location That's that right. we're soon gonna lose. Uh possibly staying. We'll see. We're you know, we t- there's there's talk but that's a whole our listeners don't care about that well let me add one thing if the tornadoes do hit we're actually in a pretty safe place if you look around we would the three of us get in the bathroom and uh have clancy tell us stories about fool's paradise all right (laughs) so so seth and i also went thank you to dave scruggs at phillips arena for getting us the seats although i ended up moving to better seats and periscoping and that actually plays into my Pont City Market story that I'll tell at the end. Mm-hmm. But R-S-T-N-E-R on Twitter. Follow me if you want a Periscope. The Radiohead I people were had- freaking out. All the Radiohead news. They were saying it was the best uh, 
best stream on on the best scope of the tour, but it was the second show of the tour. Maybe they met the first leg too. I don't know. But uh, the Radiohead fans were being very, very nice. Quite a good show, though. Such a great show. I, and the hardcore Radiohead fans were not that impressed by it. Why? Because they played uh, hits? No, they didn't really play hits. Uh, Just because it wasn't up to their level. And I don't, I'm kind of on the middle on these sort of things because I know there's the knee-jerk react. Oh, they're hipsters, they're jerks, they just don't appreciate them. But it's like uh, when you've seen a band at their best and they don't deliver their best, that's your perspective. You know yeah. what I mean? I was that way with the dead. I feel that way with Fish now. Like rarely are, is Fish doing for me what they did in the 90s when the, just the improv was just relentless and all the time and the energy and, and their engagement and the fans were more focused. So now, you know, Fish shows, they're still great. I'm so glad they're playing but it's not doesn't do for me what it did then and that doesn't mean i'm an asshole that's just my perspective you're an asshole but but for other reasons <laughs> not for that with radiohead though the i i've seen i've seen a handful of shows so uh, yeah I, i've seen yeah, them same but, about five six or seven yeah something. i'm a five o- over you know 20 phenomenal uh, musician i think their their performance their light show uh just the their their elegant performers that's a really good word for it there's an elegance to what they do. There really is. and they're, It's they're, pure freaking rock and roll, but it, there is an elegance and a, ma- a majesty. Yeah, there is. It's a very, they're, they're calculated, uh, they're not jams, you know, everything, the sounds, the way they're changing up their instrumentation, they're, they're bringing out the piano. There's a lot of movement going on. And then when you look at the pocket, I mean, it's all about the pocket with Radiohead. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but pay attention to the bass player and the drummer. They yeah. do not they do not uh, unlock from each other. It's incredible. And I don't just mean musically, sonically. Uh, look at them. They're staring at each other. The bass player is on the drummer the well, whole okay, time. Right. And the fact that they're staring at each other isn't really the crux. The crux is that they're always airtight. They don't airtight. let up a little bit. You're, 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 so, you're so right on that. And and Phillips Arena in Atlanta, Georgia, not known for great sound. I thought where yeah, we were was that. good sound. I don't I've, get that. I've, I've, I've experienced bad sound there. Sure, but... I, I guess where usually, you sit, though. I guess know, club to, level's pretty good, just saying. Yeah, thanks to Dave Scruggs <laughs> and a couple other people who've hooked me up over the years. I, I'm usually in good seats. Straight on in the back. I've seen Rage Against the Machine, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and Young, and Springsteen straight on in the back there. That can be really, that yeah. can be a nice thing. And I still ha- I still get a little teary-eyed going in there because there's no Thrashers. And now, folks, I'm not a big sports fan. Don't but get boy, me started. Did I love going to Thrashers games there? It's such a good yes. time. But people aren't here to listen to us talk about sports, Rob. Bruins, Bruins beat Tampa 4-0 going to playoffs, playing really well. <clears throat> of course, Very my, happy. F- my favorite concert there was the uh, Celtics and the Hawks. That, that's a basketball game. I know, but the energy was yeah, that of a fish show. This was playoffs and and and... You know, the Hawks won. That was game six the year the Celtics game won. Game two with... and game four. Oh, okay. It was incredible. The four was the big one. Oh. The first round when the Celtics won the championship. I the couldn't Pierce believe year. it. it was yeah, I was out of town then. I was watching with John Chain in North Carolina. But like we said, our listeners here are not listening One last to thing on Radiohead. I may not be the biggest Radiohead fan in the world. I'm a babe in the woods. I'm just, You're a music I'm, I'm wild-eyed. But I've got two pieces of Radiohead credibility. And number one. Number one is I saw him at Tibetan Freedom Concert. Oh, they had Michael Stipe on stage, and he even sang a verse of their song. And I start, and that's on YouTube. And we'll tweet that out. We'll tweet that one when we release this, if I remember. <laughs> if you remember, number, oh, listeners, yo- don't be shy about. If we say we tweet stuff out, and we don't email us. Come on, get involved, listeners. Start emailing. Start start following us on Twitter. Start sharing us on Facebook. Don't just sit back and listen and enjoy. If you want this show to go on, support it. It's basic. You're not paying for it. Get off your ass and support it. And you can do that at Inside Out WTNS. Yes. <laughs> I love uh, you, though. I love you all. And number two, Rob. I saw Tom York perform on the steps of, of the Capitol. 
Wow, for it was it was, was it around the it was a Tibetan or? related thing. Oh, okay. I don't know. It was pretty sweet though. Solo, mm-hmm. special moment. Cool. But I should have kept up with them more than I more than I had. You know, there are certain bands. Well, it's kind of hard to though. It's a hundred dollar ticket. I mean, yeah. that's an expensive ticket, and they so rarely tour. They've played yeah. the Georgia. They've played here four times since I moved here in 1999, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I've been to three of them. There you go. Hey. So what do you say? Shall we uh, release Steve Berlin on the world? Yeah. On our world? Our world. Folks, if you're a jam band fan and uh, you particularly lean toward the trad and Grateful Dead side of things, you should be aware of Los Lobos. They are just a wonderful, wonderful band. And this is Steve Berlin, who's not an original member, but considered part of the classic lineup because he's been with them for thirty over 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And for those that are music fans and... I, I just I just urge you to take a look. Go online, Google Steve Berlin, and take a look at all the artists he's worked with. And he's got projects from Bluegrass, like Green Sky Bluegrass, uh, down to Deer Tick and Indie Rock and all things in between. So Yes, do that, but do it casually while you're listening to Seth and I interview Steve Berlin. Outside of the city winery, and I guess it's, it's a, it makes sense that we're sitting outside. I mean, city winery. Now we've got the city sounds and Steve Berlin from Los Lobos. Howdy, and from so many many other projects. And, I, and I'd like to start with the fact that as a, a young guy, you were producing a great band called the Blasters. I never produced the Blasters actually. I was but, a member of the Blasters for a little while, but I never produced them. But you were in the studio with them. I was in the studio as a member of the band. Did you, you know. learn? Is that where you first got the the taste? No, I. I I, uh, I, I guess I got the taste earlier when I was growing up in Philly and I was always, you know, quote unquote producing the demos of the bands that I was in. I mean, you know, wasn't, I guess it was producing, but, you know, wasn't, I was just the guy that would come early and stay late and make sure it got done and, you know. Not the kinda, guy doing the flyers. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, me. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of where it started. And then I moved to L.A. in like 75 <clears throat> And, uh, you know, I really wanted to do it. So I, I found this guy named, his name was Brian Beverly. 
And uh, you said this was in L.A. In L.A. Was it in Beverly Hills? Seventy-six. No, no, he lived in. Uh, Not much time uh, with Steve. El Segundo, and uh, somehow or another, I I cajoled a record deal for him out of uh, Tacoma, a guy named Denny Bruce, and uh, we actually formed a band called the Pep Boys. And uh, we were managed by uh, Aaron Russo and Paul Rothschild, which was kind of another ah. eye-opening thing. And the reason we were managed because they thought that the sound of the demo was so extraordinary that they wanted to see how we did it. <laughs> so it was kind of like, I guess, it was kind of weird. Uh, but you know, like Paul Rothschild asking me, 19 years old, like how I got those sounds, like it's kind of weird. So when you started uh, your career in the music industry, it wasn't just playing music. It was it was actually producing as well. I didn't realize that. I, I've always had a duality. You know, I've always been really into both things. You know, it's, um, I think they kind of inform each other. You know, I, I know what it's like to sweat the bullets on both sides of the glass. <laughs> so um, I think it helps. But yeah, I've always wanted to... I kind of basically started, I always wanted to be an architect. You know, I thought that was like the coolest job there was, like building shit. So that's kind of where it kind of, I guess where it started. Like when was a, like really young, that's that's what I, because I had an uncle who was an architect. I used to hang out and just watch him, you know, do the drawings. I love the smell of the, 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 you know, the paper that they use had this really weird sort of like crack-like smell. So it was <laughs> sort of like. You know that kind smell. Of fun. Yeah, you know that smell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That was, uh, and then you know, I, you know, as adolescence hit, you know, the only way I was going to ever meet girls was to play music. So those and, two things kind of intertwined. In and you had a taste for punk, right? The Flesh Eaters. Yeah, Flesh Eaters. Yeah, we're going to tour in January. You reunited the Flesh Eaters. Every oh, fifteen right. years, we get back together again. But it's going to happen. I, was it like last night? Actually, I just got the official uh, tour schedule. So yeah, we're going to do a two-week tour in January. Wow, we got an exclusive here, Rob. Yeah, you do. That's brand new news. Well, we have another exclusive. I don't know if we want to jump to that, but we hear that uh, you're going to be producing the new blind, co-producing the new Blind Boys it's, album. Uh, there's going to be three or four producers on the record, so I'm going to produce a, either a third or a quarter of it. And a friend of the show, Randall Bramlett, is the author of one of the songs? I, I'm pretty sure one of his songs is going to make the cut. I'm not oh, sure if awesome. I'm going to do it or one of the other producers is going to do it, but you know, he wrote a great song called Almost Home. It's amazing. But getting back to your career, how do you first work with T-Bone Burnett when you're in the studio with Los Lobos the first time? Uh, well, how actually, did you meet him? What? Let's see. The first thing was, so I met the Lobos. So I was in the Blasters, and I met the Lobos guys, and we became good friends. But I was still in the Blasters, and I was touring with the Blasters. But I would, whenever the opportunity presented itself, I would go play with Lobos, and then they got an offer to do a song for a movie made by a friend of ours, friend of mine wasn't in front of theirs a guy named Art Fine and that was the first thing I did with them as producer and that went pretty well and then we so that was what year was that like 80 I guess and then we sort of like Lobos you know parallel with the Blasters sort of came to the attention of, of Slash Records and I guess without really selling it they made it seem like I should produce them to Slash when that was being discussed and then Slash said, well, that's cool, but, you know, we'd, we think that it'd be cooler if you did it with this T-Bone Burnett guy. And I don't think at that point T-Bone had done much, if anything. So we were both, at that point, relatively early in our producing. Like him, not quite as early as me. That was would be like the second or third thing that I ever did. Uh, but, 
that's where I met T-Bone. So we produced the first EP together, and that went well. And then we did the next record together, uh, the Wolf, Will the Wolf Survive? Was together. A- and Selma on that one? The the Grammy nominated. Selma was on uh, on the on the EP. Yeah, and that's yeah. We won the Grammy. Did it win a Grammy? That. It was nominated. Did it win the Grammy? We won the Grammy. Yeah. Seth, they won a Grammy on their on the EP. And a, a funny, ago. amusing story. So. Um, we were in New Orleans on the night of the Grammys that year because we didn't think there was a chance in hell we could. I mean, there was really no reason to think we had any hope of winning. We were up against way more established bands. So we were in New Orleans at a place called Jimmy's that I don't think exists anymore. So we were, it was the, you know, we were in the pre-show thing. So it was like 5 o'clock, so it's 7 o'clock in New Orleans and we're at a bar next to Jimmy's and the Grammys had just started there, so it's seven o'clock there, and you know we're just kind of you know it's before internet and you know like it, even cell phones. I mean there was, you know it's hard you know it's what years it's eighty three, so it's hard to get the information. Well, there there was so, beepers, right? So we're <laughs> so we're you know we're watching the screen and the sound is off, and we're in a bar in New Orleans, so it's like you know they're playing New Orleans stuff, and and we're just like we're just you know kind of watching the screen and stuff like that, and then. You know, sure enough, earlier tonight, winners are include Los Lopez, and we see our like uh, a couple of the guys' wives were there to. Res- and we're like, holy fucking shit, we want to fucking grab like, we want to grab. And like all these guys are at the bar, like, yeah, right, you guys, yeah, everybody comes in here and says they want. No, it's like, look, dude, that's that's my wife. It's like, like we were we were jumping up and down. So uh, yeah, and I'm sure the, and the then, uh, manager of the bar right at that moment goes up and changes the ticket prices up. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so then we, you know, like we're like, oh my god, we're going to believe. And then we go to the show, and there's like 12 people there. <laughs> including uh, Roddy Frame from Aztec Camera. There's the one and only time where I, I met him, and oh. he and I both got <clears throat> blind drunk that night. <laughs> Just remember the hangover. But, uh, yeah, that was a fun night. So does that is that part of the reason why the band was in a position that they were in to be able to make How Will the Wolf Survive? Will it the didn't survive? hurt. You know, I think uh, the critical reception, certainly, and, you know, we... It, it you know it, it was just like we got on a glide path at that point you know like the, the EP came out and we it, it did you know way better than anybody thought it would and uh, obviously the Grammy helped so you know all that kind of fed the narrative I guess one thing that struck me when I was researching for this is that you and I have something in common that and I'm getting chills now when I first heard that song the semi-title track it's almost the same title right Will yeah. the World Survive I, you just I just knew I was hearing something very very special and and I, and I understand that that's when that's when you clicked in with Los Lobos as well? Well, it was... We were rehearsing uh, for the record. Um, and we're at a friend of ours, Gary Ibanez's garage. So Gary always let us use his garage to rehearse in. So that was like... That was our hang. And uh, so I remember the day, actually. We were working through a few songs. We had worked on uh, Gotta Let You Know... So a couple of stuff that, you know, kind of, I guess, in our wheelhouse, you know, nothing up to that moment was, you wouldn't say would be specifically different than anything we had done to that point. You know, they were blues-based or, or Norteño-based or, or, you know, our vocabulary hadn't really broadened up to that moment. And then the, I just remember the day that Dave said, well, you know, I got this new one, you know, check it out. And I just remember, like, the light went on in my head, like, Okay, well, everything's going to be different from now on. So, and it was. I mean, that was kind of like, that was the real breakthrough, I think, in terms of um, 
just vision, I guess, vocabulary, I guess, would be one way of putting it. Like to be able to sort of synthesize this stuff and really create something that was that was new in the sense of we weren't trying to do like a Cajun song or a, you know, what I mean, like the, everything, like the stuff on the EP was great, you know, but it was our like the Lobos take on like a Cajun song or a blues song or a, or this song, you know, like we everything was sort of like referential, and that one was self-referential I yeah guess. So that's was kinda, beginning to have its own sound so that's kind of weird that's what I'm that's that was like the, the the you know the aha moment did you feel this weight though as a band that you had to play a certain style and represent a certain style no never we if anything we were anti that I mean it was we we I think we put some limitations on ourselves like that that's what I mean like vocabulary like we really hadn't figured out the vocabulary quite yet but we we did know that we didn't give a fuck about Orthodoxy. I remember back in those days, uh, Chris Stockwitz from uh, Arhuli used to come see us, and he would literally come see us to complain. Like, Why do you play so goddamn fast? Why do you play so goddamn loud? You don't have to play that fast or that loud. Like literally, he would come to like all our shows, and we play around Berkeley and, the, and San Francisco. He just come to whine about like, Chris, don't come. <laughs> We're not changing, dude. It's, this is what we like. Cause I don't understand. Why I have to play so goddamn loud. Well, Sorry, pal. And all that would pay off later. But can you talk about the studio at that point and some of the some of the other musicians that were around? Uh, in so, what, which era are we talking about? The How the Wolf. Oh, the that story. Well, um, so when we were making Little Survive, so we were at uh, Sun at um, Sunset Sound in L.A. and we were in Studio Two, which was legendary for a lot of stuff. Like Van Halen did uh, the second record there, and. Just like a lot of great records were done in Studio Two, and we were really lucky to be in there. And Studio One was blocked out by Prince, but so we were in this, you know, for us very nice studio. But we didn't have enough money really to rent, you know, like they back then the studio would rent you <coughs> compressors and mics and stuff. Like there was like a bare, not bare bones. There was enough stuff to make a record, but if you wanted like the cool, like the really cool stuff, you had to rent it from like the this, studio. Like they had their own backline company. They within. had their own back. It was, you know. You know, we did a lot of records with those guys, so we came to you know, like that kind of went away after uh-huh. like one or two records. But back then, that it was a pretty healthy business. I mean, they get like an extra couple grand a week out of us or whoever had to rent this stuff, uh-huh. and we didn't have it. So Prince, his methodology was to he had Studio One, which was across this basketball court, blocked out, and what he would do is he would it was all ready to go, and then he would call the studio and say, "I'm coming over." A half an hour later, he'd show up and work for three day, three or four days straight. I'm not kidding. No sleep. Wow. We would leave and come back the next day, and he'd still be there. I'd never having left. He would. That's how he would do it. But then he would go out, take off for you know, in some cases months, you know, weeks. And we were there, I don't know, like two months, and we only saw him, I think, <laughs> twice, maybe three times. But when he wasn't there, we, you know, we wanted all the cool gear, so we would go in there and take out his studio. <laughs> And the studio kind of winked, like they kind of knew, you know, like they, they thought it was, you know, at least the the assistant engineers knew. I don't think the boss knew, but the assistant engineers would kind of see us walking down the hall with, you know, like. And they just roll their eyes and look the other way. and preamps and stuff like, well, like, okay, you know, that's going back when he shows up. Like, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, we're not, you know, we're not taking it. Were you ever nervous that Prince would listen to an album and be like, wait a second, I know that sound. No, it's not. No, that but you did have to scramble to put the stuff back sometimes. But then you know we would, they, you know, we get the he call a half an hour, and then we get like the twenty minute call. Okay, you got and like no matter what, we're in the middle of it. Like, oh shit, go <laughs> plug everything or put it back. And there were a couple of times where we missed him by like a minute. You know, like he was coming in the front door, we were going out the back door, just having put the shit back. 
Uh, I just see Scooby Doo in my head right there. Oh, it's pretty. It was pretty Scooby Doo <laughs> moment, believe me. So then, by the light of the moon, another wonderful CD, the neighborhood. Those are the next two. Yeah. And are you you're playing but not producing, right? No, I think basically, but by, by the light of the moon. By that point, I had been in the band. You know, they heard all my stories and all my tricks and shit like that, and I wasn't frankly getting along that good with T Bone, and uh, oh. so it was it was uh, decided that I would no longer produce the records, which was frankly fine because it wasn't, you know, I, it, it was easier and less stress for me to, to step back. Plus we had this other weird thing that we were doing that turned into La Bamba and somebody needed to produce that. And the guys, you know, no one knew that that was going to be anything. I mean, when we started it, it was, you know, I wouldn't say it was a joke, but it was, you know, the commercial prospects were, were low and we were coming off, you know, album of the year and, you know, Grammys and all this other shit. So I was delegated, if you will, to, to work on the La Bamba soundtrack. So I was in Studio 3 doing that while they were in Studio 2 doing By the Light of the Moon. But that's kind of like two projects, the La Bamba, because you're doing an album for the band and then a soundtrack for right. the movie, right? Yeah. So that was happening uh, simultaneously. Oh, but it was, okay. to be clear, the priority was By the Light of the Moon and not La Bamba. That was literally an afterthought in every way, in every way possible for everybody but me because I had to actually deal with it every day. So they were all in that studio. I was in Studio One trying to make sense of this lunatic director's... You know, nobody had made a movie... Like, everybody... Nobody in that in that process had ever made a movie before. You know, Luis Valdez never made a movie. The only guy that had ever done anything was Taylor Hackford who was producing it, not directing it. And his job was basically to, to just keep a a leash on Luis because Luis was insane so the story like the like the the script kept changing you know like it would be like literally okay we'll do uh, come on let's go he's in the the Brooklyn Paramount okay and then like halfway through like no he's in his garage oh right, so we'll do it you know like no he's back in the Brooklyn Uh, and then he you know guitar string breaks alright damn now the guitar string doesn't break but his voice cracks like like literally that's what I dealt with for like six months like because they didn't really have a set script They, they were improvising it for the most part and then the other issue was they couldn't fight a Richie like uh, Lou Diamond Phillips they had shot the entire movie except every scene that Richie was in because they couldn't find a Richie no way and he showed up like he was I remember Luis was like don't you guys know anybody that can act don't you know anybody don't you have any friends that look like they could play guitar and act we're like you know punk rockers yeah we know guys that are you know tattooed necks is that gonna work for you like no Uh, (laughs) and then they found they found you know Lou in a he nailed it. Dinner theater in, in San Antonio, yeah. I in mean, it was dinner theater in San Antonio? Dinner theater in San Antonio. I remember the day he showed up, I was just like, he would like eyes as big as saucers, like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm in Hollywood. Like, yeah, he was doing like dinner, he was doing, you know, bullshit stuff in San Antonio. And then he, you know, they, they found him and obviously he was the right guy. And that changed the band. First of all, you had annoying people yelling La Bamba at shows. It changed you a lot of stuff. Do. But it was, it was still like, the weird thing about that whole process was, so we, all right, so that so we did by light of the moon, and we did La Bamba, and then we went to Europe for like a long time, like right, like right as it was coming out. Uh, I think by light of the moon had come out, and it was actually you know kind of disappointing. And then like so we we're in kind of a weird mood, and then La Bamba came out, and we we're in Europe, and again it's like pre cell phones, pre internet, and so we're hearing like you know hey the movie's really doing good and the single's doing good, like yeah yeah right, yeah like hey man the single like. You know, we would get like a telex or something. I like get singles top, top eighty. We're like, what? No, no way. Like, 
movies like top you know it's like we, we kept getting all this like and not, like I remember none of us could believe it because it was just so improbable that this you know this weird this movie with all these amateurs literally amateurs slapping together this movie it was going to be and I remember seeing like the movie went through so many cuts and I remember the last cut before we went to Europe was like I thought to myself wow that's a pretty good movie it's a shame nobody's ever going to see it <laughs> <laughs> And then, all right, so then we're, so we're in Europe and all this stuff is happening. And then we haven't even, like, I'm the only guy seen, in the band that's seen the movie. Like, nobody else has even bothered to watch it. Because, again, nobody gives a shit. So we're in Baden-Baden, Germany. And they rented a movie theater. So we did our show and then they rented a theater in Baden-Baden for us to finally see the movie. Because at that point, it's really kind of blown up. And what no one knew was that the sprockets on European projectors and American projectors don't line up. So... You could hear the dialogue, but the music, the music's all in the Oh, no. And I thought, I was literally suicidal. I thought, oh, man, these guys are going to kill me. You know, like, this whole shit went down with Tebow. I was like, you know, and now they give me this job, and I fucked that up, too. <laughs> I just remember, like, on the balcony of my hotel room, like, $7 a minute, like, screaming at Taylor Hacker. Like, what the fuck did you do to this movie? Like, dude, it's a hit already. What are you talking about? Yeah. The music sounds great. Like, the music sounds like shit. No, it sounds... You know, it was, it was just that. You know, I figured it out relatively wow. quickly. Anyway, so then we, we came back, and we are like, top whatever top 20 top 10 like and still like you have to understand like we're you know all this information is coming to us like like mm -hmm. sketchily yeah. and then yeah. we land in back in america and we're like fuck we're stars is this <laughs> how'd that happen and you know um jerry garcia was a huge fan of los lobos yeah, and it was one was... of the few times the grateful dead covered a song that was on the charts at the time <laughs> that's funny i forgot in 87 that. the first time they did it was nuts they would do it in the middle of I good forgot, loving i totally can, forgot about that yeah can you talk about his relationship with the band because it was at a time when he was kind of reclusive but he would come to yeah, los lobos he shows. would come to our shows he was a huge fan of ours and especially of david he just loved david he, he was they he literally loved him and yeah he would come and we played a place in uh in Cotati, uh, California, called New George's, and both he and Carlos Santana showed up to sit in. This was pre La Bamba, so we were still like kind of struggling touring, and we had like one extra guitar. And they were there's a great video, like a you know like this club video. It looks like a surveillance video of <laughs> of them like trading off the one extra guitar that we took with us. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, it's my turn, Carlos. Yeah, I know. It's, literally, it was, you can see him. Like Carlos is there. Like you know, I want to play Lobos. I want to play Lobos. It's I'm not good. Uh, but he was, you know, his just his his like he's he was a wonderful human being, and just like his presence, like just the fact that he thought highly of us was a big deal for us. And and he was always so cool to be around. And like you know, then we opened a bunch of shows for the Dead, and it was always. No matter what they were going through, Jerry was always like, just hang out with us. Like, hang out in our dressing room. Like, hang Isn't out there... with David, talk guitars and shit like that. So, real quick, and a record that often gets forgotten is The Neighborhood because it's between maybe your, you know, two of your greatest. Um, and it's also on the heels of your most production heavy tour ever. That was, yeah. So, that was actually kind of an unpleasant record to make because uh, we had sort of. So, after, you know, we did. We did by the light of the moon that we did La Bamba and it was you know was what it was and we thought we were a big deal so we we were a big deal for a minute we but we, but um, it was you know we didn't <coughs> perhaps grasp how connected to the movie specifically and solely it was so so we had you know we were touring on this grand scale that we frankly couldn't afford and didn't need and uh, we were I think poorly advised back then you know so we 
so um, we we did the like there's a lot of La Bamba stuff and then we did actually in there was uh, um, more importantly was uh, La Pistola which was a huge uh, La moment Pistola, for us uh, so it was another, another Grammy winner winner um, and that was sort of our way of reclaiming our souls back from the <laughs> the maw of you know the popular entertainment but you, real quick you're the only non-Hispanic guy in the band when, yeah. when you're doing that kind of music how does your role change? Um, not very much at all you know still just five knuckleheads trying to get through a show so I mean different instruments though different instruments you know I just try and find I mean obviously I'm not you know there's no electronic keyboards or soprano saxophone <laughs> in the 200 year old songs that we're doing but um, just find a place for it you know it's you know I, it's kind of what we always do you know we, we, we don't do anything orthodox so yeah. it's, it was always our interpretation of of what that music should sound like and, and on that note is it true that you guys now uh, going into this next year are going to be working on a new album uh, uh, and again unorthodox but it's going to be uh, your interpretation of The Wall <laughs> that would be about the only way we would do a new album right now I think <laughs> our interpretation of something no I don't see it happening uh, not Los Lobos The Wall the I wall, mean it's yeah. just it's the best come on could be yeah maybe I don't know let me think about it so I'll, then the I'll, neighborhood... I'll take it up to corporate and see what they say <laughs> In the, na- in the studio, why was the neighborhood done? And, uh, and did it all lay the groundwork for Kiko? So, well, it did lay the groundwork for Kiko. Uh, it was difficult for a number of reasons, most notably. So the guy that had engineered the records to that, the guy that had engineered uh, most of the record that, that will survive and all of By Light of the Moon was a guy named Larry Hirsch, who we loved. He was, uh, you know, a high-strung New Yorker, brilliant <laughs> engineer, and he had effectively begged us to let him produce the next record. He recorded uh, La Pistola. And, you know, he'd, we felt like he had earned the shot, you know, and he had never produced anything. And like I said, I was not into it. I mean, no one was going to ask me anyway, but I wasn't going to do it. So we said, okay. And what ended up happening was, so we had like this whole hubbub with La Bamba where we were touring on a scale that we couldn't afford. We came home, we were broke. And then we go right into start making this record with Larry, who again is a lovely human being, but Larry felt like it was his big chance. Like if if this record wasn't a bigger hit than La Bamba, he was a failure. So there was uh, yeah. all this pressure from him to do it, you know, right. His idea of right. So we ended up doing the record, you know, six like every song was done. Like our methodology was, you know, up to that point was you know, we didn't really sweat song you know we didn't really grind them out you know we, if we couldn't capture them quickly they probably something was flawed mm-hmm. um so we we're not you know we were we were not a band that would you know literally like slave over parts and song you know like any of that shit and with him in control we ended up having to do stuff like over and over and over again because of something that only he could perceive and it just took every ounce of joy out of the process there was like no joy in any aspect of it like by the third time and then we ended up doing everything like six or seven times because Larry was terrified that it wasn't good enough and as we shift gears here which we're going to do because we could talk about Los Lobos for well, we got to talk about Kiko Seth before we do that because we'll, it's we'll, a complete we'll, opposite of that right Right. right. I'm just curious though on, on your production side uh, did that experience um, create a lot of the ways that you work with yes, bands yes definitely I mean so I, mean, I learned you, a lot from everybody that, that I've worked with and you know certainly that was an object lesson on how not to make a record you know so you're <laughs> typically speaking with the bands you're working with they're not doing 20 takes it's 
It's not. I mean, when it, when the situation merits it, yeah. yeah. But it's not. I mean, he like if 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 I'm doing twenty takes, there's a goal in mind that we share. Uh huh. And it's I've made it very very clear on why nineteen didn't do it. You uh-huh. know what I mean? I, with him, it was just like he'd literally like sit there and you could see the steam coming out of his ears and he would run out to. Yeah, I remember he had this little Miata and he would like literally like every take he'd run out to his Miata. And, and smoke a giant spliff. You just see like the like the you know I could see it like the like literally it was like a Chi Cha movie. Like the like the smoke would just gradually fill up the the car because it was like a little two seater. Yeah. And you could just tell he was he he was flipping out. Yeah. Treasure and hunting we were, in that sense. We were the whatever the. And none the of us are Okies from Muskogee, but do you want your stu- you want your studio guy stoned all the time? Well, he was he was a. He was stoned all the time, anyways. But it was just like it. Would, you could tell it was just his way. Like it wasn't helping the process. Certainly, like. Him getting stoner and stoner wasn't making the record any easier to get, and I think, frankly, fueled a lot of why take three wasn't good enough, but t- take seven might be. I, take four twenty was the best, though. Yeah, right. But we want to get to your stuff, so real right. quick on Kiko because that is the, the I, I, honestly, Seth. Go ahead, tell us your truth. One of my all-time greatest favorite albums, and also a big moment for Lobos because they started messing with different. Uh, adornments to the songs and a different uh, structures as well, right? Yeah. So that, so you know, so we did this. So we took a year to make the neighborhood. We were incredibly sick of the songs by the time we were had to go play them live uh-huh. because we were just we had just burned out on. Yeah, them. yeah. It's and then we spent a year and a half touring them. And again, we hadn't quite learned the lesson, so we we're touring on a much grander scale than we needed. Right. That's huge production lobos. Well, for us, it was like you know we had a lighting guy and a you know we had like seven. I don't know. We just had like you know. We were touring like rock stars, and we weren't, and we didn't need it. You know, we, we you know we tour with two. We do the same scale show with two guys now that we had like nine guys doing. You had before. a guy to to wet your reed every uh, night. Almost, not quite, <laughs> but it was just it was just reed silliness. <laughs> reed rider. <laughs> and all right, so that went on for what a year to make it, and then like a year and a half to tour it. So by the time we got done with that, we were broke, tired, uh, <clears throat> kind of mad at ourselves for buying the bullshit, and you know, like sort of, we just in kind of. A, bad mood I guess you could say um, and then it was time to make another record so we uh, so with that kind of attitude label we pressure were, to get that, yeah, that next record yeah was some label pressure to get going and so we I had uh, was, I produced Leo Kotke at a studio called Paul and Mike's which was now it's unbelievably exclusive real estate back then it was literally it was the nickel like you know when you when you hear about the, like life on the like Tom Waits song about the nickel it was 5th street downtown LA which was like the worst place in Los Angeles it was homeless families people living in boxes you know it was just like a really 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 tough place to be if you ended up there and it was but, sorry, from, sorry about someone that. from there <laughs> but uh, it was a, a guy named Paul DeGray who's a brilliant still is a brilliant engineer and uh, so I had suggested the guys that we do our demos there because it was really cheap and it was close to the, like they lived they were still living in East LA and it was you know it was like the only studio probably the only studio close to East LA at that point. And you're still living in LA at the time. And I was living in uh, Venice at the time. Okay, but not Portland or yeah. So it was kind of I mean not I, I didn't mind going wherever, but that it was convenient and cheap, and in a weird way the the you know like it kind of put things in perspective like you know oh poor you know musicians you know we're so mad at ourselves for blowing all this dough on the road and you know making a record we didn't like and like shit look I man look this guy your family living in a cardboard box here you know it's like uh, let's, perspective, let's get yeah. some you know let's really 
make this real. You know, like that's not seize the moment, take advantage of the opportunity. Well, just it kind of like slapped us silly, I guess. You know, like the reality of what we walk by every day to go to the studio was okay. That's real, and this, you know, so we just kind of took stock of what we were and what we had, and I think it was a good place to begin what would then be Kiko's because you know we we had figured out probably at that point that we weren't going to listen to anybody else anymore like we because we felt like we, we had been badly advised so we we just said we're not taking anybody's advice anybody doesn't like what we're doing they can go fuck themselves you know no one's going to tell us how we're going to do our records no one's going to tell us how to tour no one's going to tell us shit about shit because these fucking people steered us you know wrong um so <clears throat> then like so the the beginning of Kiko when it ended up being most of the record was done at Paul and Mike's you know in, on a, like a demo basis and then we went to so we cut I think five or six songs and then we took it to Lenny Warnker at Warner Brothers thinking we had no idea what he was going to think like this was pretty weird music compared to everything we'd always, or, or, had made up to that point but it was we definitely were proud of it we knew it was we, we liked it and if Lenny had said he didn't like it, I'm not sure we probably would have said, "Well, we probably don't belong here because this is where we're this is where we're going." You know, that we're not mm-hmm. we're not going to make La Bamba two. We're not going to make By the Light of the Moon two. We're not going. We're certainly not going to make Neighborhood two. You know, this is this is this is what we like now. And he was like, "This is great. I love this." Um, what and then like we kind of left that meeting feeling really really good. And then I think a couple of days later, he said, "Well, what do you think about maybe getting Mitchell Froom involved?" And we had done, there was a, the single version of One Time, One Night, Mitchell effectively produced. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think he got any credit for it, but there was like, we, we, there's an album version then, him and us with John Hyatt and a few other people that never got credited did the single version of, well, of uh, One Time, One Night. So we kind of knew, and then we, he'd done, of course, the, the single on Obama we had done with Mitchell. So we knew him didn't really know him particularly well it was not he, he hadn't started working he had just started working with chad blake at that point so when we did he did the single of la bamba which obviously was a huge hit that was with uh, another engineer forget who it is now I think michael frondelli i forget who actually did that record but lenny said well, what do you th- what do you think about mitchell was said, yeah sure let's give it a try you know got along pretty good and he brought chad and they had just come off chad blake chad blake who you know i think is really the co the co-creator of Kiko in every respect, you know, it's his sonic vision that kind of made it. And Mitchell, obviously, I'm not discounting Mitchell, but it was like it was it was the right people at the right time to make the right record for sure. Like everybody, and we were everybody like they had just done a record with the Pretenders that evidently was horrendous. That so we were all like really like pissed off at the music business, <laughs> I guess you could say. Understandable. And that kind of you know, but you know, they loved the the. The, what the demos that were soon to be in masters and then we just started working on it and i think it was like three or four four weeks and like every day was just better than the day before it was just like it was so much fun to make like every day was like what kind of hijinks are we going to get into today and a lot of it was just you know the attitude of not giving a fuck like whatever and, and more pointedly not just not giving a fuck but we realized that we really like the sound of us not knowing how the songs go <laughs> so like we would just get a very bare sketch of how the song went and then like somebody me Dave Conrad whatever would put a part down that was very you know tentative in the playing but Chad made it sound like it was you know 
the music of the gods. Nice. So it's just like, wow, that's that's kind of effective. <laughs> and you and you said that you start <clears throat> stopped listening outside of the band and started listening inside of the band. Well, we stopped listening to advice. Right, like it right. Was, it and wasn't like we stopped side. listening to music, but it was no, no, and the advice we side. Were, the advice part, you know, like, and it wasn't like we ever really listened that much anyway. But it was the there were a, a number of debacles, you know, Paul Simon record being in there, you know, like a lot of. We were getting a lot of really, really bad right. advice from the people that we quote unquote were supposed to get but our advice from. Who's the leading voice in the band that's now taking on a lot of that oh. internally, or is it very, very? It's uh, a very, it's demo- democratic. very democratic. You know, Dave would you know would Reluctant. be the most equal among equals, but he doesn't really say, "Do this, don't do this." You know, like nobody says. You know, it, it was obvious what was happening. Like, mm-hmm. no, there wasn't really any. I mean, we don't. There's not that much dissent. Like when we make a choice, it's got to be unanimous or near unanimous. And it's still that way now, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, there's a little more dissension now, but back then it wasn't. There was nothing ever happened if someone felt either good or bad about something. And are are you never? You know, we would. It it had to be unanimous to move. And God bless Los Lobos, but there's a whole wealth of. Yeah, uh, uh, stuff to you as a producer. You have an amazing career as a producer, and I want to know. You're known as a very hands-on producer, and when you're when you're producing someone like John Lee Hooker, is that an issue at all? I mean, well, you, it, go to ahead. To be specific, the the Hooker stuff was Los Lobos, and I just kind of facilitated. Uh, okay. I I I thought it'd be cool to use Mario Caldado from the guy that done the Beastie Boys records, so I made that happen because um, I thought it'd be awesome to for him to actually work with. John Lee Hooker in the flesh instead of sampling him. Uh, and it was. That's I mean, it was, that was an amazing it experience. <laughs> so I can't, I, it's in my bio somewhere, but it's like I didn't. That's for the it healer? Was by, yeah, the healer. Okay. We just did one song. So I, I can't claim much beyond mm-hmm. but in general, putting John Lee Hooker and Mario Caldado well, I, and, I, I can, and what, the what are the benefits and drawbacks yeah. of being very hands on as a producer? Well, I can't, you know what, honestly, I don't, I mean, I'm only hands on when the situation merits it I mean I kind of I've done plenty of records where I was a well-paid spectator you know I felt like I was a well-paid I mean, maybe <laughs> ask the artist they probably feel differently but to me I just felt like wow this is kind of awesome I'm just hanging on here this is great uh, but you know I like I guess it kind of gets back to the architecture thing like I like to build stuff so if I'm working with people that are aligned with that vision and we built ship and so sometimes it takes what i mean that that has real no actual definition other than you know like it'll be a sound or a part or a song or something you know it's like let's try this let's try that and for example well well, i would say you're not stuck to any genre either i mean you know you're working with modern bands like uh deer tick and last uh, eight months i've done hardcore funk record two bluegrass records Two singer-songwriter records, a punk rock record, uh, one like classic rock record, you know. So yeah, I'm lucky. Are I get people, to do all kinds of shit. Are people coming to you, or are you going? Are you still going to bands? Or uh, how's, how's that process working most, for you? It's coming to me. I would say like ninety percent of the time. There's something you said in the '80s that um, you would get a lot of offers, but then you'd find out there were nine or ten in the same other other guys that were getting a lot of the similar offers. Is is it similar to that today, or? No, well, not for me. I mean, like it's more defrayed. It's well, <laughs> part of it is it's it's so hard to make a living at it that you know there's not many guys left doing it. You know, okay. it's like I luckily have a a good day job. You know, with Los Lobos, <laughs> so I can afford to do records at the budgets that they're at these days. You know, most guys, you know, a lot of guys have just been 
weeded out of the business because they, you know, you, you can't the the way the budgets are, it's almost impossible to make a realistic living out of it. But on the budget side, if uh, if one of these bands that you're working with hits, do you get points on our, on the song? Yeah. So that's. I mean, What's interesting about that, though, is that we've probably, I would, my lawyer and I were talking about this the other day, that we're probably like maybe even three or even four generations of musicians since producers got really paid to do stuff. Like back when I started, it was, you could make a good living. And you didn't have to make hits to make a good living. You could right. actually, well, the record you, could, like, you could be a, and I was probably like a B or, you know, low, high C level producer for most of those years, or maybe somewhere, and I would elevate but I was never A level, and I was, you know, you sure it that? was, I, you know, I mean, I never, I, you know, I had a couple hits, but it was not like the guys who were going from hit to hit to hit and making, you know, fifty or hundred thousand dollars per record. I was never, you know, I was always limited. Number one, I guess, by my talent. Two, by the fact that I couldn't really work on records for a particularly long time because we were always yeah, touring. So tour. it had to be stuff that could be done inside the windows that Lobos allowed me. Uh, so from then till now there's like you know even like the concept of points to bands are like what like, what's the we, point we, we paid you what you know why what what you know what else do we have to do like you know as well you know you and you sound like father time well you see back in the <laughs> 90s you know and people made records you know they would get paid and they get points and they're like you just get this you, you okay, can see grandpa. this look yeah literally like really wow why like well, that's and you. And I hear myself say because that's how it's done. Like, so I hear Jerry Seinfeld going, they "What's the point?" And they go, "Well, you know, doesn't have to. Does it, do we have to do that?" Like, and I feel bad because it's like, "Well, shit, do they? I don't know." I think you they know? do. I think I, they I do. Kinda, you know, it's, my lawyer gets really upset about it, and I always have to talk him down. Like, <laughs> no, and I just keep saying, like, these guys, they don't expect that they have and know what the history of producer artist contracts look like they don't and they don't give a fuck nor should they it doesn't it doesn't affect them so you just gotta right. gently take them but, and but try and tell them how it's how it's quote unquote supposed to go right. it may not be supposed to, how it's supposed to go but it, you know it seems fair to me that if you do the work you should participate in the, the outcome but right. sure but at the same part time, of the creative process. These, I, you know. these artists are coming from a different place also yeah. where before you had to go to the studio, you yeah, had to work exactly. with a producer. Whereas now it's like, I could do this on my, yeah. you know, my laptop and that I've done my mom bought me. Like that. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I get it. I'm not, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a nebulous concept that I understand certainly where the artists are coming from. Now working with some of these younger acts that you work with, do you find that you're not just producing them, but you're also kind of maybe a, a, a father figure, a, a therapist, if you will, giving them the advice. I mean, you, you have a successful band you have that, that's been able to stay as a unit for so long. Your reputation that, precedes you. This. That do would be true of, of everybody, not just the young bands. Mm-hmm. The, the, even the older artists that I work with sometimes need parental guts <laughs> such as it is but uh, you know you, I, I tried you know I may look like father time but I try to you know like be a, a, a co-equal partner on stuff I'm not I'm certainly not coming down from the mountain with the tablets and saying oh you know this is you know again like this is how we used to do it like I I, I, I really really try hard to never say that you know right. ever it's like well, I, and I really try hard naturally. to also like start each record fresh I don't I don't bring a much of an agenda you know my brain but you know I, I try not to I learned that the hard way like don't assume you can't start from G you got to start from A on every record you can't you, there's no there's no way to, to you know no good record starts without like a fresh slate you know blank page you just got to go from the beginning and hope for the best what memories do you have of Faith No More 
That was uh, amazing. They were they were so committed to them, you know, the band. Like, they were so intense about what they, you know, they kind of grew up at the feet of Metallica, and those guys were, you know, like that that whole like, right. you know, yeah. I mean, thank God they didn't spend a year working on a bass drum sound, but they. <laughs> They they kind of like that. That's like to them. That's how you you made records. So they were like fierce about the process. And I remember hearing like an, like an early like the, the the songs had to matriculate through this process. And I, I remember heard an early version of uh, the big hit. I'm like, oh my god, can we do that? Like you want oh. it all? Or yeah. And and they're like, no, it's you know it just you know that, that we just started. No, that one's it's going to take a year to get that one. Like. Because it, it just literally like they had to filter and filter and filter and filter really? until they got to the idea that they wanted. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Diamond Rugs, that's what I wanted to ask you about sure. before we move on. Um, what came first, Diamond Rugs or working um, um, on, the, on the album? Diamond Rugs. So okay. that came about, we played, in, we, Lovis was doing a show in Providence, Rhode Island. And we, we don't do it that much anymore, but we, we usually do, we used to do this thing where we would like sign shit after the show, like sign CDs and stuff like that. And so we're there, and we're you know we're sitting down, and like there's just like this line of people coming, and there's this guy with like crazy eyes, like I'm like oh man, this guy's in trouble. I can just tell. And he, he's like he comes up to me, and goes, "You're Steve Berlin." Like, yeah, <laughs> that's goes, the voice. We're gonna make a record. I'm like, oh yeah, you bet, buddy. I'm like, no nah, man, we're gonna make a record. He goes, "I'm John McCauley. Want some mushrooms?" <laughs> 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 he had like a like a pillowcase full of mushrooms. <laughs> And I was like, you're, I said, you're John, John McCauley of Deer Tick? Goes, yeah. I'm like, John Mc, and John McCauley of Middle Brother? He goes, yeah. I said, fuck yeah, we're going to make a record. Because <laughs> so I thought like the Middle Brother record, to me, it's, I think it's one of the best records ever. I mean, I, I think a Middle Brother record is, and I listen to that record the way people would watch the Zapruder movie. Like, 
like how do you how do you make this how do you how do you make a record in whatever year it was that sounds this guileless and and free of artifice and sounds like they were having the best time like I love the the faces because they it always sounded like they were having like the best like it was a party that that they happened to make a record at and the middle brother record sounded like a party they happened to make a record at. it just had that same feeling and I just couldn't like I had no idea how you could do that in the the mid 2000s because you know everything just seemed so fucking serious and so you have that reference for them and now you're in a situation of producing them how do you yeah yeah but well the secret sauce for middle brother was this incredible studio called the playground in Nashville, who oddly enough, I was hanging out with all those guys last night in Nashville. Oh. Uh, 8-track, 1-inch tape. That's the secret sauce. It's, it, makes you, it makes you commit to your ideas. It makes you have fun because you have to do it in the moment. You can't, like, you know, Pro Tools allows, you know, clearly most of the music being made is made by amateurs, sometimes talented, sometimes not. But with the software, you can make anybody sound like they know exactly yeah. what they're doing you literally just answered Rob's, Rob asked that exact question yesterday what are the benefits of 8-track I don't think we were it's on air it's so yeah. wonderful yeah. I would make every record well I can't make every record but it, it but it takes you know great songs players willing to play you know like you have to you have to really do either do your homework or have a moment like Diamond Rugs and Middle Brother where the, you get the right people in the right room and stuff just happens but you know, for some bands that aren't, say, well rehearsed or the songs aren't fully written, it's it's horrible because, you know, you ca- the, the, mis- the the tape is very unforgiving. So mm-hmm. it, it only it only shows what actually went down as opposed to Pro Tools, which nine times out of ten is highly manipulated version of what went down. And I'm just guilty. I'm not saying I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. Like Pro Tools is great because you can fix stuff that's almost great and make it great, and you know it, it allows a lot of, you know you could make creative decisions that you could never make on tape but when you're doing a, especially an 8 track tape you only got 8 tracks so you do stereo drums that's 6 tracks you do a vocal that's 5 tracks you do guitar that's 4 tracks so you gotta fit all your ideas into you know all the crazy bullshit that I do into 4, four tracks so you're doing you know three, four, five, six things at once mm-hmm. there's a, it's not on my phone anymore but there's a great picture from the first time in a Ruggs record of me playing flute Robbie's playing Glockenspiel. Macaulay, Hardy, and Ian are doing hand claps and backgrounds. And Macaulay, I guess, didn't like the sound of his hand claps, so he's slapping his his pants are down around his ankles, and he's slapping his ass. <laughs> Send it to us. We'll tweet it. I, it we'll, we'll it's on my it computer. It's, the, uh, it's, it's just like that, that's a track <laughs> recording. That that picture is like that's obviously the last track on the on you know that's the eighth track. We had to get all that shit done, and we had one track to do it, and so that's how we did. It. Did incredible. you take the mushrooms, by the way? <laughs> uh, I didn't, but I believe uh, somebody in my band might have. I'm Could not gonna... you play on stage with Lobos high on mushrooms? We there's one there's one night in the entire history of the band where all of us did mushrooms, and it was in at Tipitina's in New Orleans, appropriately uh, during Jazz Fest. Even more appropriate. And we were all tripping balls, and John Doe, who we love like a brother, was in the audience, and we're like, "Hey, man, hey, look, it's John Doe," and, and John was shit faced. <laughs> so we get him on stage. Like we're, we're probably shit faced with tripping, not good. And, and people are like, "Get that bum off the stage!" Like, like, <laughs> nobody knew John Doe was like, "Get that bum off the well, stage!" That, like, that's no, appropriate. No, he's our friend. No, it's okay. It's cool. Nobody really 30... knows who John Doe is. Oh, that's funny. Did you do a thirty-minute version of Peace that night? Uh, we did not. I don't remember a lot of what went down that night, but it was it was fun. I mean, we still talk about it. But that was the one and only time when we all. We're not like the Allman Brothers. You know, we would take mushrooms <laughs> right. and 
and you know write the songs. Speaking of the Almond Brothers, you did tour with Tedeschi Trucks Band just last summer and Doyle Bramhall. Yeah, and that was amazing. So that was they are the best people that yeah. happen to also be in the best band in the world. I think they really are. It's like they're every single person in that organization is the best person they I think really are they're just we, amazing we've limited time i think our listeners would really like to know about how the collaborations happen how, how do you guys work that oh, out geez you know it's just like by the end of the tour where they were it's like they're like by the end of the tour like north mississippi would do one song and then we would all come out and then right. we would do one song and then they would all come out and then tedeschi and trucks would do like most of their set and then we would all come out at the end so it was just you know it was the spirit of that tour like everybody yeah. just got along so well and everybody loved each other's playing so it was just like it's kind of automatic. Like you couldn't say no. Someone said, you know, hey, you want to jump up, and then inevitably the songs would, you know, like one would turn to four guys, and then it'd be like literally, you know, their whole band would be on stage with us for three quarters of our set. Well, here we got the what's going on. And then on. they would do two and a half hours set right. on their own. But Susan, what's going on? That kind of I've always liked Susan, but I think she's very much grown as a player. Oh yes. And her fronting you for what's going on is such it was a powerful. Pretty pa- well, you know, she could sing. You know, she could Mary sing. had a little lamb. Would probably be. <laughs> Powerful. I mean, she's that great. We're gonna. Can we uh, expect to see anything with you and Kofi in the future? Uh, you know, it just dawned on me as I'm sitting here that he lives here. He but lives in near Europe, though, here, right? but yeah. I, I, well, I don't know. They might be, but yeah, he lives over in Stone Mountain when he is here. And yeah, I think. Uh, it, pretty sure they're in Europe. He's, he's great. Or at least next somewhere. record. You guys working on one? Nope. Uh, the, what was the last one called again? Uh, Gates of Gold. How's that, how did that do? How was that received? It was well received. It was not. It, the records get frankly a little harder and harder to make you know we, it's harder to do stuff that doesn't sound like stuff we've already done <laughs> so gotcha. uh, you know it, it's uh, there's we're not even discussing a new one yet I mean it may happen but we don't have a record label so we're you know it, it would take a it would take a few of the stars to align for it to happen would you point. ever consider taking a, a a songwriter that you all respect that's not yes. very well known and doing yes. an album of them we, that was one thing that we have discussed. I think, and frankly, that might be the way that we'll find our way back mm-hmm. to a recording studio. Would be doing something like that, you know, like with. I don't know if we would. I mean, it would probably be somebody that we all already know and like, like a Alejandro Escovedo or somebody like that, like somebody who. who you know, Bruce who, Coburn, Bruce Towns Van Zant. Towns Van Zant, except I don't believe he's alive. Uh, Randall Bramlett. Uh, <laughs> I knew Bramlett. I was waiting for you to drop that. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Um, uh, yeah, it could. It, you know th- that could be the way, but we we did do one thing recently that was a lot of fun. We, and I think it just it's about. If, I think it came out today. We did a like a remix of a Shin song off their new record. Oh really? Yeah, it's a song called "The Fear," and uh, that's cool. It's I think it's I'm pretty sure today was the their release day. We will tweet that out too. And, uh, when this is pretty released, pretty great. Yeah, we, that came out. That was a lot of fun. It came out great. So one thing I do want to ask you: you mentioned the Shins here. We talked about Deer Tick. Uh, you're very current on your music, so uh, for our listeners, I don't know. Throw throw five band names out there that that you would suggest our listeners should know. Uh, Steve right, so I saw this band the other night in Phoenix called the the with an extra e the Commons, who are amazing. They're like like you hear this word psychedelic a lot. Like it's psychedelic. It was like psychedelic cumbia. It's really psychedelic cumbia. Psychedelic cumbia. Yeah, they were they were freaky good. They I. And I have nothing to do with them. I don't produce them. They don't. I, they, they, I didn't meet them. I don't know them. Uh, outside of that, I'm sad to say that I'm only. I mean, I've really only had much time to listen to either stuff I'm working on or people that I've worked with. Like the new Deer Trick record is unbelievable, but it won't be out till September. Yes, it's amazing. They, well, they mentioned it on. A, we had a 
We had it's a little really, story with them a couple weeks ago. It's and so good. It's, and it's going to be a double album, right? Double album. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, it's, it's ketchup and mustard. <laughs> oh, really? And it's, it, <laughs> the whole concept of it is, it's such typical John McCauley genius. It's like, there's no difference in the album covers. Oh, but he's sober now, right? <laughs> uh, hell no. So, really? I'm or paying for he... the hangover that he administered right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> he's, he's, he's toned it down. Like okay. He's, he's, a, he's roughly 30% of what he was well, he's a father now. To, he's so. a father, and a very excellent father, and he's a stay-at-home dad, which is kind of awesome. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's no, he's not so providing any stretch of the imagination. Well, I, well he's one less. of those musicians, though, that probably needs that. I, I hate to say, I hate to use the word needs, but let's face it. Sometimes the drug, the alcohol, whatever it might be, enhances the the character and I can well, see I that being say, there as long as it's know, under control that could be I mean I thought the songs that he wrote for the record that I produced were amazing but the songs he wrote on the new record are the, the new John and they're better wow if, or at least as you know I mean they're amazing it's a great record uh-huh. so that's two uh, can I shamelessly self-promote absolutely of course right. please do a uh, record that just came out I think or about to come out a band called Sweet Spirit in Austin that uh, they're amazing Really, 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 really great. Um, what kind of music? That would be like punk soul, I would call it. Like punk soul. Yeah, like interesting. Like high, high, high energy soul-like song structures played by you know really great musicians. They're very young; they're twenties, maybe late twenties. But uh, I don't know why led by an amazing singer and just really, really great ideas and great, great stuff. Uh, and making movies, new making movies record. Those guys are amazing as well. I saw, I saw a video. Uh, there's a YouTube video uh, with you working with them. That's oh, making movies. Yeah, yeah. they're. Uh, this is my second record with them. They're extraordinarily brilliant. And uh, God, you know, so much shit I'm doing. Um, How about one of the else? bluegrass bands you've recorded? Yeah, uh, you've Green Sky Bluegrass. And I'm, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh. So I did the new. The, that one's out. The show. And I'm I'm about to start the new leftover salmon record. So no this will be my my third leftover record. Excellent. So, yeah. Let me ask you this. Comedians often talk about being afraid that if they stop using their recreationals that they'll lose their talent. Do you run into musicians along the way that have that same kind of attitude? Not anymore. Not anymore. That's encouraging. You know, it used to be probably, but I think these days everybody's <laughs> everybody's inflicted with the same self-doubt and, you know, I think there's enough sort of tools out there to, you know, you could really, you know, you don't necessarily have to resort to the recreationals to figure out, you know, to solve it I, I, I don't know I mean I'm lucky enough that the people that I work with with a couple of exceptions are sober enough when I work when we work together that you know I don't it's never an issue uh, but I don't I have no rules I mean if somebody wants or needs or desires it unless it's a problem unless they're like fucking up I'll right. fine you know on that note yep uh, <clears throat> I want to leave you with one band I want you to check out okay. it's a, a soul band uh, slash indie rock a little dark they're called the Sharon Jonestown Massacre thank you so much for your time <laughs> yeah and I'm sorry about uh, 1996 further tour I yelled for Set Me Free Rosalie at almost every one of the 14 shows oh god uh, but I really just thought the Deadheads would like it okay well, you may get it tonight I'll see what happens
Thank you again to Seth Weiner for arranging that interview. Very special interview with Steve Berlin. Uh, what I was referencing there at the end, uh, they, uh, Los Lobos toured with the Further Festival right after Jerry Garcia died, and I went to 14 of those. Um, well, it was a bargain. It was like $30, $35 a show, and you got seven or eight bands. Yeah, I, I was, the, I was at the one in 2000 at Compton, and it was the crazy. That's so weird. That's the other ones with Alfonso instead of Phil. I thought that was Further Fest. Uh, it was like the last Further Fest. It was Rush of Ruta, Hatuna, and them, Yep, right? yep, yep. And there was just, oh my God, what a weird scene. Have Did Yorma you... come out with the Rush of Ruta and do You Can't Always Get What You Want? <sighs> Man, that was I, happening that I tour. I don't remember. No? I, I mean, the fact that I remember that I was even at that show is good enough for me. Go ahead, though. What were you going to say? So there's this song, Set Me Free, Rose Lee, which is sort of common now, but they put it away for the longest time, but I thought Deadheads would love it, so I yelled it out at, at, uh, at the first show I was at, and then the next show I was at, they're a Los Lobos fan. Said yeah, that had noticed me from the night before. I was like, yeah, yeah, man, I love set me for a little. So I, so I yelled it out again. So then it became a thing. And then I was yelling it at every freaking show. And I think I annoyed the fuck out of him. So you think that he remembers as well? No, I asked him. He didn't, <clears throat> which is fine. Either that or he's being polite, which I doubt it. He doesn't seem remember. like a guy who feels the need to be overly polite. Uh, it, 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 uh, what's the word? Insincerely. Mm-hmm. So my story first or, or Clancy? Well, I do want to say one thing about the interview that we didn't talk about in the beginning. Okay. Which is, for those listening, you'll notice that there was uh, some background sounds. Oh, you were freaking out, Seth? I wasn't freaking out. But yeah, the background sounds is are the city of Atlanta, some noise out there. We we, did, we conducted the interview outside. We were essentially in the in corner the of North and Glen Iris. <laughs> so there are cars driving around. There are people walking by, like uh, stopping and, wa- and watching us. One person started to try to talk to us. It's like... We're doing an interview with headphones on. Why would you try to talk to us, genius? Come on. Uh, just uh, getting a text from uh, our partner here with Live for Live Music, Kunj. I wonder what he's interested in talking about. Perhaps some of the big news we're working on? Yes, he wanted to talk to you today. Don't forget that. I won't. And folks, Bef- uh, we do want to mention, uh, we can't tell you who we're interviewing yet, but we did already talk about this on our last episode. And I do want to remind you, coming up in May, we are going to be set up backstage at the Colonel Bruce Show, uh, his 70th birthday party, if you want to call it that, um, at the uh, Fox Theater. And man, I mean... The uh, interviews are going to be coming in, but they are going to range for all over the place. Uh, we've, so I mean, is it my understanding we're going to put up a sheet and just let the artists sign up? Is that still... Uh, no, I'm, I'm advancing with everyone ahead of time. And, oh. and then also we'll have definite things uh, set up and then we'll also leave rooms and we'll have where people can sign up. Exactly. We're going to capture people's... Uh, just a couple sound bites, you know, what, what Bruce means to them, what they've learned, their experience with Bruce, some stories, things like that. We'll compile a nice episode, but we'll sit down. Hopefully, I mean, I'm really hoping maybe we can sit down uh, and do a full interview with someone like Warren Haynes, John Fishman. Billy Bob Thornton. That would be awesome. Can you tell them we'll talk only about music? We can. I will. Uh, so we're reaching out to all the publicists now. And if you're a publicist and your uh, artist is on the bill and you're listening to this, thank you, by the way, for listening. And uh, email us, inside out. WTNS at gmail.com. It's about time publicists woke up the podcasting world, isn't it, Seth? I'm noticing it's happening. We're getting a lot more emails from publicists lately. I just got a good get for the Timeless Music Podcast. Check out the Timeless Music Podcast. Timeless Music PC on Twitter. And what exactly is that, Rob? That's more of a low-key, artist-centered... Not so, folks, he's being bashful. Rob Turner is, uh, as in the podcast world, if uh, those new to podcasting, you know, you have your show, but you have a lot of side shows as well. Right, it's- because the infinite is vast. You're not dealing, this is, a lot of people have a hard time with the podcast, getting out of the terrestrial mentality, especially with show length is one of the most obvious, because podcasts you can pause and listen to 
anyways, one of the other things is that you're not drawing from a specific market. You know, it's not the Boston market where two sports shows compete for a limited amount of people. It is the internet. Mm-hmm. So anything to bring you into your fold. So if you have multiple podcasts, they complement and, and promote each other, right? Yep. So complimenting that. And also, I want to make a compliment to a, a fellow podcast out there. Under the Scales, Tom Marshall just interviewed our friend, Mike. Benji. Well, Oh, I was talking about Mike Greenhouse. I haven't uh, heard the Benji one yet. Benji one just came out. He talks about his book here. He uh, wrote... Um, With the, Bill Kreitzman? Yeah. The, Benji, if you're listening, he's not. He is. He, he, he said oh, really? he picked up and he was very excited to listen that to a couple of our shows. That is such a great book. He did, that is his crowning jewel so far. I bet he tops it. But as a crusty old veteran deadhead... I, I, I don't see Bill Kreutzman writing that book without Benji. And he talks it's, about the whole would, writing process. That uh, book would not have been nearly as good without Benji Eisen. He talks about the writing process and how, you know, the he, he was in Hawaii and, Benji's and all Benji's come a long places. way. He Benji has. used to write long articles about the first time he got laid. <laughs> like, really self-indulgent, boring crap. Now the guy is one of the better writers on the scene. Well, I, I want to make mention, and if you listen to the, the thing that, Listen to the uh, listen to the show, but yes. one thing I want to say though is okay. you'll hear how Benji has really progressed as a writer. Oh my God, he, yes, he, he's done the research to learn how to do the research and how to you know when you inter- when you interview someone to to write their stories and their in your voice for their voice. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Right, what fine. he did, he got really into the essence of Kreutzmann. I mean, he took acid on the beaches in Hawaii and really got, didn't just sit there and take notes, he really got into the essence of who Bill Kreutzmann is beyond beyond the scales. <laughs> but can we, uh, their previous interview, they had Mike Greenhouse, who's a friend of mine who... Uh, uh, a friend I, of ours from Relics of ours. Magazine. Well, the thing I like about him, and I get in trouble for this a lot, is a lot of writers just stand and stare at the stage and have a sort of entertain me, uh, prove yourself to me attitude, which can be obnoxious. You know, A lot of writers are very uh, proud of being jaded, which is really a weak-minded thing. You people who work in the music industry you people. who are jaded and proud of it, <laughs> get over it. That's dumb. My greenhouse is not that way. No. You can hang in him with a show and that bugger boogies. Like a Wookiee, he and does, I, love I love his that. little jump. He has his jump. You yes. know what I'm talking about. I don't, I don't know. I just know no, that Mike, if, I, if you're listening, if I'm standing next to him at a show, we're both lost in the show. I'm not looking at him. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the inside of my eyelids and grooving and feeling good. But he did above the skills, and they did it in a library, which is odd. So when we have, in honor of that, we would like to have Mike Greenhouse on and conduct the interview at the 18th hole of the Masters during the final round in Augusta. I like that idea. That'd be a great idea. So. I think it'd be fantastic. He has so much stuff to say. I, 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 it sucks to have to strain to listen to it. I know. I really, I really, Mike, if you're listening, listen closely. Come, come. Come down. Augusta also is a place where a lot of rock stars have played golf and seen golf. So, you know, it's appropriate. Like the public library is appropriate because Jimi Hendrix did something there. Or something. And I believe there's music there. They have yes. a big thing called the Rage or something. Right. Okay, we'll talk about that later. So now talking about something. No, Pond City Market. Yes. So I tweeted them about, they, 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 we have this secret space, which I've kept secret. Now I'm going to blow it up because there's, ah, this, no, there's these spaces. Rob. Well, no, they're, they're unmarked in, in the underbelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Completely the unmarked. I got the, I got the uh, you got this, the ticket too? I got too? The, the, the warning. St- I, I got so mad. I'm like, you can't give me a ticket. And then it was a warning. And then my wife sees it in my car and she goes, you got a ticket? I'm like, no, oh. it's a warning. <laughs> Just what you need. Another thing for your wife to get mad about. It's the eighth thing today, I think. Um, so I tweeted them, and they ignored it. So then I'm at Radiohead doing the scopes, and my freaking Twitter account is blowing up with people hitting and people liking and all this stuff. Suddenly, uh, suddenly, Pond City Market responds, and uh, and they asked me to send them a private message, and I did, and they still haven't responded. Let's see if they've responded. If I 
Uh, I hide we'll, my phone because you're worried. Yeah, I'll right see there, if they right, responded. Right. In the meantime... Hey, Clancy, come over here. Clancy. Clancy, who works for Shimon Presents, is uh, one of our leads at yes, the Yes, he's sick of hearing me say it, so I'll say it now for the last time. He is one of the best employees you've ever had. He really is smart and on the ball, and I'm, and I I know at the party, I, I got the look from Clancy. Like, will you stop fucking saying that to people? I, I want to be no more than, you know, Seth's best employee. Right, Clancy? Oh, uh, you're too kind. So, Clancy, come over here. We're going to share this mic. Since, and he's been uh, working on this accent for years, people, so... Yeah, be impressed. This is a really good, this is like Simon level fake accent. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about uh, Fool's Paradise? Fool's Paradise. Uh, I had a great time at Fool's Paradise, actually. Lettuce killed it, as always. Uh, vastly coming one of my favorite bands, I would say. Were there, how, how were the collaborations? Were, were artists sitting in and jamming with each other and stuff? Yeah, there were a few sit-ins. Uh, the Shady Horns with Floozies was, were really good. I uh, always enjoy seeing those two guys. Well, the four guys together as well. Uh, O'Teal got up, did a little thing with uh, Jesus and the guys on the first day. Nice. Uh, Antoine Stanley was hanging out, doing a few sit-ins with everyone as well. O'Teal also sat in with... Um I almost said dead and company. Uh, Joe Russo's almost dead, and which is pretty cool. Dave Drywitz of Ween just kind of stepped aside and played tambourine or something. Were you seeing that? Uh, no? Yeah, I did see O'Till up there. I um, didn't see I wonder the, what that's the tambourine like. up there. You know what I mean? Dave Drywitz is the bass player for the band, but O'Till comes in. It's kind of like when Phil would sit in with the almonds and move O'Till aside. I don't know. I always wonder if that's awkward at all or if it's just... Keep that in your notes for the uh, time we interview O'Teal. And so, Clancy, what about the... Um, talk a little bit about... Did you camp and did you do any of the excursions? And the late night shows. I didn't camp. I was at the, the KOA just down the road. It was about a mile. So that was good. Would you say it was KOK? It was A-OK, yeah. It, we had a, a cabin there for the night, me and a couple of mates. So it was good time. Um I didn't do any of the excursions. I kind of wanted to to play ping pong and see if I could beat Deitch and Schmeens, but I was a little bit too hungover on Saturday. I don't think I could have hit a ball. <laughs> and what about the late night shows? Seemed like good lineups, but I, I to be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of that Elk Lodge. I had a bad experience there. Yeah, I agree. I um, actually agree 100%. I thought the music was really good for the late nights. Uh, they were having a lot of fun on Saturday. There was all, all sorts of guys out there. I couldn't even see who was out there, but... The Elks Lodge, not not my favorite venue. I mean, it's, it's nice that it's right next door, but I think they should step up, find a better venue, and do shuttle buses. That, or maybe just uh, take an area and put a tent out there and do a late night. Oh, I guess sound probably is an ordinance. But, yes, uh. the sound and then weather. There's so many things that come into play there. Uh, now, I heard about the excursions. Uh, they did the um, Shady Horns, which is a Benny Bloom thing. Uh, so Benny on a boat, essentially. So next year, Benny's getting a, uh, an airplane, a jet, actually, and it's gonna. You can sign up and and be a part of Benny and the Jets. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh man, she's a really king. She got electric moves. I'm a hustler, you know I'm in it in a magazine. Oh. It's a good thing we don't do editing here. Uh, so Clancy, um, you've got a busy summer ahead of you with the work exchange team, yeah? I do, yeah. We're quiet at the moment, just setting up, getting ready for a, a busy summer. Uh, our first one will be kicking off with Firefly in Delaware, which is in June. And I haven't been to that event yet, so I'm excited to, to check that out. They always have a pretty good lineup, and I've heard good things about it. And where can people sign up to get involved with this uh, work exchange team? 
It's Word Exchange Promotional Hour. Are they paying for this? Are they sponsor now? <laughs> no, I'm doing this pro bono. But they could head over pro bono. to... I'll be pro bono at Bonnaroo. Go ahead, sorry. Head right over to workexchangeteam.com and we have a list of all our events up there. We have Firefly. We've got two weekends of forests this week with uh, an added option to work in between the two weekends and have both weekends off. That's the playthrough option. And it really is a great way to get, uh, it's a cliche, but it's true, get your feet wet. There's a lot of people all in the music industry who started in the work exchange team. And they'll also teach you how to get free promotion on a podcast that, uh, that work exchange barely supports. <laughs> oh, Rob. So Ponce City Market still has not responded, so I guess I have, to, uh, I have to periscope another major touring act before they'll respond again. Is that? I would think so. Hey, Clancy, thanks for your time. Thank you, Clancy. Thanks for your work. Seriously. Yeah, no worries. And also on a side note, side note I heard you guys talking about the Masters. Tomorrow, the Major Rager is on. That's what it was called, the Major yeah. Rager. You know what? I know something about that, and since I don't know it from, a, from the band, can I say it? Sure, sure. There's going to be, I think, Marcus King and some of the JB Horns are going to sit in with Umphreys? <clears throat> I didn't see Umphreys this playing is not... for the Major Rager. Yeah, who's that Umphreys? Tomorrow Umphrey? is uh, Flaming Lips and... Moon Taxi, who you guys just spoke to yes. last week and spoke about Rage Against the Machine. They're going to be doing that They're again They're doing the tomorrow. Rage set. Yeah. Oh. Pe- people of the Sun. So yeah, I, that's pretty much the main reason I want to Who's the Marcus King night? Marcus King. I didn't see that one. Are you sure that wasn't last year's or two years ago? I don't know. I'm just getting texts about this. Uh, Maybe someone goofing with me. Was it April 1st? Damn it. Yes, it was. Uh, speaking of April 1st, by the way, Rob. <laughs> I, I, I bought another thing on a desert trip. Brad from the Variety. The place I used to go to all the time. He sent me uh, a desert trip thing. Oh, yeah. You saw that? Uh, Brad was on it. Terry Jackson. It was ridiculous. But for a second, I bought it. I really did. I'm <laughs> 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 like, a bunch. Hey, if you got a good April Fool's story, uh, send it to RST. What's your email? I don't even remember. I don't know, but I think... you. <laughs> I kind of think music writers should avoid April Fool's moving forward. Oh, talk about that. Oh, come on. It's so rarely funny. Sometimes it is, though. Oh, come I, on, I particularly, Seth. every year I go to jambands.com to see theirs, and I was maybe happy to see Live for Live I, Music doing it this year. Maybe it's I a, like it. Maybe it's a problem I'm such a fan of actual comedy. I think the thing is that it gets a, confu- it gets a little confusing because you get, it's like you see the April Fool's news, and then you see the real news, and it's like, uh, what's real? For me, it's confusing because I listen to people like Greg Fitzsimmons and uh, uh, Nick DiPaolo and Jim Florentine. And how it's done. Uh, I'm talking about like the comedians. Oh, I love okay, I love okay. Howard, and I still listen to him at times. But that that's like ninety three, ninety four dead at this point. There, there's so many great comedians doing amazing podcasts out there. So that when I'm coming fresh off of one of those, and I see jam band music writers try to be funny, it the contrast can be um, stark. All right. Well, on a serious note, a folks, for effort though. A for effort. On a serious note, uh, coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks, we've got uh, some good uh, some good interviews. We're excited about uh, next on deck though. JoJo Herman from Widespread Panic and Bean Land and his new band, which I'm still I still got to learn about. Mm-hmm. There's not much on them. Yeah. Uh, voila, voila. Okay. Well, that's gonna be our job. <laughs> it's Widespread a, Panic. It's not Whiskey Wednesday. It's uh. Oh my God! Come on. I miss, I miss Slim Jim. Slim was it Slim? 
Slim Wednesday. Slim Wednesday. I used to go to the Widespread Wednesdays over at a place in Decatur. Smith's Old Bar. That was great. I used to love that. I missed oh, that. Oh, yeah. And then Tex-Mex. Right? Oh, yeah. No, no. That was uh, Decatur you're talking about. Yeah, that was... Um, Tex. What was that place called? Uh, was Big Tex. Big Tex. Yeah, so they were reopening, by the way. Widespread fans, follow us. We've got a lot of good widespread things coming up. Widespread fans, follow us. That's right. I can't, an, I can't say what, but we've, we've got some exclusive stuff coming. Yeah, believe me. Widespread fans. <laughs> so, Rob... Have a good day, sir. Are you sending me back out to the tornadoes? Yes, sir. It's time for us to go. You sure Thank- this episode's not too long, Seth? Are you okay? Uh, you know, it probably is too long. But People yeah. have two weeks to listen to it, and they can pause. You understand that, right? They can also... Podcasters know they can pause and go back to it. Yeah, I really wish you would tell them that in the beginning, because now like they, <laughs> they're they going to be pissed off. We're going to lose our listeners. No, podcast, podcast listeners know. They know. Thank you all for listening. Different breed, a great breed. I love you, podcast listeners, particularly ones who support the show. And, and on that note, thank you guys. Please... Do us a favor, make comments on the show on iTunes, share the show. If you've got a Facebook account and you like any of our shows, share it. We want more listeners. We want people to be able to hear this stuff. We've got some great interviews. Uh, some Go deep in our catalog. I don't know if you guys listen to the Black Angels or not. They're coming back through here in yeah, Atlanta on a week. big tour. They're um, out everywhere. And, uh, but the interview with them was fantastic. And one of my worst moments. Oh, in the interview? Yeah, I mispronounced the name of their idol. The first oh. name of their idol. I think I call them Roki, and it's Rocky. But I'd only ever read it. I didn't know Austin Psychedelic. I know Bay Area Psychedelic. Yeah. I just was learning Austin Psychedelic at the time. But what is the reason why... Really, I, really bad error. One of the things about that type, that type of interview... Maybe that's why they ignored it on, on social media. <laughs> Maybe. That type of interview, though, really leads you... It's like a gateway interview because it leads you into ex- exposing you, really, to so much more. And that, and in that case, the psychedelic music. Well, right. They mentioned bands on their label. I've checked them out really good. I, I want to go back and check them out more. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, all right, folks. Take care. We'll hey, talk and, to you in And those of you, those of you who are friends of ours who love this type of music and haven't listened to uh, an, a single episode, you go on ahead and fuck yourselves, okay? <laughs> Do that uh, at your earliest convenience. All right, here's some music to play you guys out. <laughs> Unsupportive <care>. jerks. <laughs>